Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How you doing? What's up? Well, not sure if you heard, but we had a mass stabbing in town the other night. I did hear that. I was uh, very worried and immediately went to confirm that you were still tweeting, and you were, and I was happy about that. Um, yes, I was. But it seems like there's not a lot of information out right now about the person who did these stabbings in Quebec City as we talk on Sunday evening. Mm -hmm. But uh, what awful, awful news coming out of Quebec City. Yeah, I think that what is clear is that this was an individual who had expressed desires to commit a mass atrocity like of some kind, uh, at least having once admitted it uh, when he was 18. He's, he's now 24. He drove from Montreal to Quebec City, and he did this in the in the old city, which is usually a place that would be full of tourists, like really full on Halloween of tourists. But um, but but there there are no tourists in town, and so he he killed two people. One is a uh, one's a woman who had just gone outside to to have a cigarette before bed, and and she's known in the neighborhood um, of Saint Jean Baptiste as a as a hairdresser. And the other person that he killed uh, was the director of communications for the for the Musée National de Beaux Arts Quebec, so our, our our main art gallery here. And five people were injured, and there's a publication ban on on them. So all we know about them is that there was two French nationals, and uh, they uh, and and all five are residents of of the city. So pretty sad news, and it's putting a spotlight on again the questions of how public. Uh, how the how how public health and how politicians deal with uh, questions of um, white male rage, uh, which is something we've obviously talked about a lot on this uh, podcast. And considering that a lot of the themes, like we don't know if that if he's motivated at all by any racism or any other kinds of hate, but uh, certainly a lot of the themes that have emerged so far about this guy sound very similar to Alexandre Bissonnette, who was the person who killed six men at the Islamic Cultural Center in the city as well. So that's, um, it's really frustrating because there hasn't really been a single policy change at all uh, related to, to that atrocity, other than some minor gun control measures. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the mental health side, on the fighting hatred side, there's been nothing. And so it's it's pretty it's pretty brutal to hear this again happening in, in our city only three three years later after the last time. So that's how yeah. I am. But uh, how, how are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, as good as one can be just a few days before the U.S. election. <laughs> but right. one of the reasons why I'm doing so good is because on Wednesday we have our first interview together. Yes. <laughs> we're going to be interviewed because we're a part of the Vancouver Podcast Festival. And I'm also doing really well because on Monday of last week, I got to see you at your book launch, which was fantastic. And I'm so glad that I was able to be there. Uh, what a great event. I actually stayed for some hours. You know, it was good. Yeah. That was, I was a bit surprised at how fun it was. Like I kind of was like, oh, it's so, it sucks. We can't do it in real life and all this stuff. And I was thinking that maybe Sandy and Nora should set up a couple of like two hour drop-ins over the next six months or something. 
Yeah, we could do that. It kind of became a Sandy and Nora drop in at some point. I was a bit nervous. I was like, oh, guys, it doesn't have to be all Sandy and Nora. This is Nora's book day. It seems like people wanted to to ask a few questions about Sandy and Nora, which was cool. Um, But, uh, you know, people were also really excited about your book and people um, had read your book uh, and I hadn't yet, but still had questions. And so uh, all very exciting. And congratulations. I'm so so excited for my book to actually arrive and so I can read it. Who knows when it will arrive? The mail service in the United States has slowed down quite Ooh, a bit. I heard but about one that. day it will get here. Yeah, I might have something to do with what's going on on Tuesday, but someday I will get the book and I will read it. Yes, I can't wait to actually to to talk to you about it. And um, if you want to get a copy, uh, at, you can use the promo code FIGHTBACK. And for the first two weeks of the sales of the book, so we are entering into week two, um, I'm donating 20% of my royalties to 1492 Landback Lane, the Six Nations land reclamation that is going on in southwestern Ontario. So definitely take advantage of that if you are interested in savings and solidarity. Um, I'm very, very glad that Fernwood, the publisher, has managed to make that happen. So you have to go to their website to, to order it, and that's where you'll find the place to put the code. So just search Fernwood Publishing, Nora Loretto, Take Back the Fight, and you should have no trouble finding it. Great. And also, speaking of the Vancouver Podcast Fest, we will be coming to you on Friday, November 20th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Pacific time, okay? All you Eastern Standard Time friggin' people. (laughs) Nobody cares about us on the West. (laughs) Uh, So at 6 p.m. Pacific time, November 20th. Sandy and Nora are going to be doing uh, a a little podcast, a little uh, live podcast podcast for y'all. Yeah, that's right. And I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, For everybody who's been in touch with me to say, what? You and Sandy are going to be in Vancouver? I'm so sorry we're not. (laughs) No, what? How the hell are we going to get on a plane right now? I mean, we're, we're like adventurous, but we're not that adventurous. Like we're not, you know, nihilistically we're not like (laughs) mortally adventurous (laughs) no we're not um i'm gonna take a a second to thank everybody who supported the podcast in the last uh, week i I have to say i've been a bit overwhelmed by all the messages that you folks are sending um there's been a lot and so i want to do a very quick uh mention of a couple of issues one uh to the person who said that i was wrong in saying that there was no double ndp governments outside of Manitoba, of course, Saskatchewan. I caught myself. I added that to the show notes. Um, but also Yukon. There's been uh, several uh, years in a row where there was an NDP government. And the person who mentioned that to me has said that our our coverage on the territories is not great. And I am noting that. And I hope that we can talk more about issues uh, within, uh, the, the, within the lives of folks within the territories uh, to make sure that folks in the South know what's going on. Uh, so I hear you. And thank you so much for that criticism. Um, and... If you've sent a message and, and we haven't had a chance to reply, um, maybe just try again at some point, just because there are a lot of messages. <laughs> and I, I'm not very good at helping <laughs> responding to any of the messages because I literally do 20 things, 20,000 things at once. And I'm, I'm sorry about that. But every once in a while, one catches my eye. And I go yeah, in there and I respond. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we love it. So, so just be patient with us. Uh, don't take it as a personal slight. And um, and definitely let your, you know, your criticisms, your ideas uh, keep coming up back to us because we appreciate that. 
Um, and and people do uh, send us criticisms and we do our best to try to make sure that uh, we address them or fix the issue or, or respond in some way. So you're definitely welcome to do that. Uh, you can email us at uh, sandyandnora at protonmail.com. Now, uh, thank you so much in the past week to everybody who's donated to the show. Um, it has been, it's actually, it feels a little overwhelming again. I'm not sure what the bump in uh, support is coming from other than you guys are all just so awesome. <laughs> your book launch it was probably your book launch. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe it's that. Uh, this week, I want to say thanks to Philip, Matthew, Amy, Grant, Stephen, Zoe, Anne, Dylan, Joel, Oriana, Madison, James, Sasha, Abrar, Carolyn, Shelby, Jean and Zachariah. Thank you so, so, so much. And to everyone that sends us a message and starts with saying, I really wish we can give, I could give you money to the show, but I can't. And you don't have to, you don't have to ever say that to us. We totally appreciate everybody who, who just listens, who suggests us to their friends. And uh, for everybody who said that um, Sandy Nora has helped you feel less alone in how you think about the world. I mean, that just, that also really helps both of us. It's just so wonderful to hear that. So thank you so, so, so much. If that was the nature of, of your message to us as well. Yes, thank you. Okay, is that it for notes and announcements? I think that's it. it the, the announcement section is getting longer and longer. I feel like we need to have like a show of announcements maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Well, what is it that we're talking about today? I don't know if you've heard, but COVID is still here. And so we thought it was time to do another COVID episode. <laughs> I did hear that. I did hear also Justin Trudeau this week said that um, COVID, it sucks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that those were his exact words. This sucks. <laughs> um, I appreciate that he speaks which is like, like an yeah. average human sometimes. <laughs> yeah. No, I appreciate that too. But I also just want him to continue with, I suck because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he could be doing more about it. Uh, but unfortunately, um, you know, he just does what he does best, which is uh, try to reflect the sentiment of the common person back to us mm -hmm. and hope that they think that that means that he's doing a thing. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's all he but, does. But I digress. Yes. COVID. Um, you've been doing a lot of research because you're writing a book partially about um, what's going on right now. Yeah. And so... I know that you've discovered some things that we talked about just before the show started. Yes. Looking at some of the data, tell the viewers what's going on. Yeah. So th this is something that has been very obvious, and we have talked about it on this uh, episode, on this show many, many times. In fact, I believe we were talking about this back in March and April. But uh, it kind of hit me again this week as I was diving into the into the data. The, the Public Health Agency of Canada, they put out a report. Um, that that specifically looked at equity issues and how they uh, impacted the the pandemic. And they came to three broad conclusions about things that need to happen. And, and their first main conclusion was that there's a lack of data, that we don't know enough uh, to be able to have good public policy to, to try and fix the gaps within public health. And this obsession with data is very frustrating because while we don't have data, we certainly have proximate data. We have ways to kind of gauge, well, if it's hitting this community or if it's hitting this this workplace, you know, we know the people who work in this workplace. And so we can make approximations that we that we otherwise might not be able to make if we didn't know even anything about the people that are being hit. And talking about this lack of data makes it sound as if we don't know. But 
we do know uh, quite a lot about how COVID has impacted specifically racialized uh, and, and more specifically black communities in this country. And for the most stark example of this, uh, it comes from the really the main public health unit that's actually tracking this in a very significant way. I mean, there's a couple. I know Ottawa has been tracking as well racial um, and income differentiations on who's getting COVID. Um, but the city of Toronto has this graph with val- data valid up until mid-September. So pretty recent in terms of like where we're at, just the start of the second wave. And it is like this is the most stark graph that I have seen during, well, it's the second most dark. I'll, I'll mention the first maybe in a bit. It says that white people make up 48% of the population of the city of Toronto and yet only make up 18% of the cases of COVID, whereas black people make up 9% of the population of the city of Toronto and represent 23% of the overall cases. South Asian or Indo-Caribbean people make up 13% of the city of Toronto and, and were uh, among 20% of folks with COVID. And then it goes down there through other uh, ethnicities. And it's just like, how is this not the major story about how COVID is ravaging Canadians? How has this fallen so far off of the radar of journalists that most people, I think, probably would be surprised to, to see this graph or to hear those, those statistics? I can surmise some reasons why, Nora. <laughs> this isn't this is not news to a lot of our uh journalists that is worthy of being told, I don't think. Uh I think that as we've talked about many times on the podcast, uh the the Canadian media landscape is a white supremacist uh, media landscape and so it doesn't look for stories like this and when it sees stories like this it goes to the next story it's like what is the other story of covid-19 uh how's it going to affect your spin class because that's what <laughs> the white folks who are listening and consuming the news <laughs> want to hear right but this is what i you know i'm looking at the the data right now i think it's really stunning and What's also stunning or perhaps really disappointing is that there's no analysis that goes along with the data to tell us a little bit about why um, things are happening in this way. I mean, we can surmise some things based off of what we know from the United States, but our situations aren't exactly the same. And so, um, you know, I would hazard a guess, for example, that if we were to take a look carefully at what and how or why this is happening one of the issues would be the failure of governments to uh, come up with safety plans for people who live in high-rise buildings for example high-rise rental yeah um, accommodations like I just I there has never been uh, any sort of reckoning with that and how to people how to keep people safe in that sort of situation who are using uh, elevators that are far too small and uh, probably aren't able to adhere to specific rules around how many people need to be on an elevator if they need to get to work on time and so on. I'm sure it has something to do with the way that particular communities have to use inadequate public transit. Uh, transit that may have reduced service as a result of COVID-19, meaning that there might be more people who are at risk uh, using a particular 
uh, tra- have in my head common carrier, which is what the law calls buses. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> common carrier. Uh, uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, transit, using buses, trains, or whatever, um, uh, public transportation, and exposing one another more. There's. It's really unfortunate that there's no analysis because it... it uh, prevents, you know, uh, policymakers or allows policymakers to say that they don't know what's going on. But I think a lot of us do know what's going on. And um, this this racial uh, data that we're seeing here, the racialized impact of COVID-19 has a lot to do with the way that we, one, don't care about racialized people, but two, also uh, don't care about people who aren't in a particular economic class. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about this while I've been watching what's happening in uh, in Manitoba. Uh, and so Manitoba had pretty much avoided the first wave. I mean, there were some cases, but by and large, I, th- I don't think that they hit even 10 deaths until like late summer. And the you know, I think that there was this this ability then for Brent Rusin and uh, Brian Pallister the public health director and premier of the province to like do the bare minimum and say, look, it's succeeding because we've got so few cases here. Um, and there's a pretty major consensus along people who are watching this that, you know, Manitoba just got lucky. And so in the past week, cases there have like ridiculously spiked, ridiculously spiked. So Winnipeg is now getting as many cases as Quebec City had been getting a month ago. So much higher than 250 cases a day. Winnipeg and Quebec City are about the same size in terms of population. But the province is not (laughs) the same size as Quebec uh, and certainly not the same size as Ontario. And I saw one calculation on Twitter that said that if if Ontario was getting the same number of cases proportionate to its population as Manitoba has been getting, they would have been upwards of 4,600 new cases in a day. Oh my God. What? Yes. Yes. Jesus. And so, and I haven't triple checked that, that math, but you know, folks go look at it. You can look at the, co- the cases per, uh, per hundred thousand uh, people. It's a pretty good measure to see where things are at. It is off the charts spiking. And in the middle of the spike, there has now been two workers who have died at the Excelsior poultry plant in Steinbeck. And at the end of the summer, there was a huge outbreak that hit almost 100 workers at the Maple Leaf plant in Brandon. And the way that it was reported, I mean, in, in Maple Leaf in Brandon is like the, the biggest private sector employer in that city. And I went through weeks and weeks and weeks of research at the Brandon Sun to see how they were covering this. And it was a complete afterthought, a total afterthought. And so it's like, hmm, why is that? Is that because all or most of the workers are racialized, are low income, both precarious? Some are migrant workers, some are refugees. Like, like, could it be more obvious (laughs) for why journalists are not taking this as seriously as possible? Um, and here we are a month after that, that was happening at the end of, um, of the end of August, beginning of September, and I guess two months after that. And now we've got this incredible spike. Um, I want to shout out the activist who uh, erected a cemetery outside of Pallister's house. That was very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, really great action mm-hmm. that you folks were doing. But, you know, we see what's happening in the city of Toronto with good race-based data and income-based data. Uh, folks in Winnipeg, like, you know very well how this is going to play out. And um, as the residential care deaths are spiking, and we're seeing that like really uh, horrifically happening as well, the impact that this is going to have on the city's racialized uh, populations, I imagine, especially black and indigenous, 
uh, and especially low income, is going to be catastrophic. And there is a piece of shit premier in Pallister who's just not going to do anything unless, like, literally he feels like he, he has no choice unless he's forced to. Um, and so it's really important, I think, for folks to think of it in that way and to really push this narrative uh, among journalists to make sure that they are not taking these issues as peripheral or uh, add-ons or an interesting feature. But the core issue is, as you said, uh, how many spin classes or, or wedding gatherings uh, resulted in outbreaks. Yeah, I, you know, as just before we started recording, uh, we were talking about this, uh, this article that I had seen trending on Twitter that was like, um, here are where the, the uh, super spreader events are in uh, Toronto, or in Canada. Uh, And it, it, like the, the super spreader events are like, a wedding, a sporting event, and then working at a factory, working at a factory, working at a factory, working at a factory. <laughs> it's like, those aren't events. Um, those are places where people work, uh, which could be effectively controlled by good policy. And I think that that, you know, it's it's important to just note that, yes, as you say, Nora, the media isn't paying attention because of who is impacted. And that is the same truth for policymakers. They're not doing what they could do to prevent the transmission for certain communities. Now, you know, I don't pretend to have all of the answers, but I do know that if we know that long-term care homes uh, are one of the 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 crucial places where transmission is happening for both patients and workers. Then we know uh, across Canada, certainly in Toronto, certainly in Montreal, and certainly in other parts of of the country, that a lot of the people who work in long term care homes providing uh, personal care services are racialized. We know that, and so why is it? that for so long, uh, these places have been ignored as places to make sure that we are bolstering whatever response that we have uh, to make sure that the transmission isn't, uh, isn't impacting black and racialized people differently. Same thing with respect to, uh, to factories where people are processing food. Same thing with respect to migrant workers who are working on farms in very close quarters. And I don't even know if uh, the migrant workers across the country are being counted in this data. Nora, maybe you have the answer to that. They should be. But we do know that people are working in very dangerous conditions generally. And so, um, uh, you know, even more uh, dangerous of a situation during a pandemic like what we're in. Yeah. And, and the, the reason why all of this is just so frustrating is because there are there are things that could be done to help target, slow down, improve safety for these communities. I mean, you mentioned one already with elevators and making sure high rises are as safe as they can be. Like there's a lot of changes that can be made there. There's been very little focus on how do the, how does the public know if a if a if a location has good air quality. So like where uh, is where are we forcing mm-hmm. uh, companies, uh, factories, uh, workspaces to like be public about their air quality, airflow, how often air is like turned over, circulated at whatever, how long does it take for like all air to be replaced by new air, that kind of stuff. 
There's been no no attempt to try and make that stuff public, which would help employees know what's going on. It would help unions know what's going on. It would help average people know if, like, this is not a restaurant you want to go to because their HVAC system has, like, been broken for 10 years. You don't want to go in there. Th- th- that would be quite simple. There's been nothing done there. There's been nothing uh, to done to force employees or factory owners to maybe slow down production, right? Maybe the problem is that they shouldn't be working at full capacity and that they need to actually have half capacity to make sure that people aren't working together in close quarters again. Because the stories are like, the stories that came out of the Maple Leaf plant in Brandon, workers were saying that the changes that they had made in, in April were uh, making things less safe. That, oh <laughs> that workers were like even closer together in the change room or they were uh, in even more dangerous situations. And the only reason why they didn't get sick was because of luck, because COVID hadn't hit Brandon. Right. Like that's all it was. And but it gave public health and, and, and the politicians the cover to not necessarily take that super seriously and just let these corporations police themselves. Uh, and we're seeing that at, at, at meatpacking plants all across the country. I mean, it's not a coincidence that these factories are the most, apparently, the most uh, conducive to transmitting an illness like COVID, which seems really counterintuitive because these are workers that have to work in full PPE and totally sterile environments because they're handling food. But there are also industries that are multi-billion dollar industries mm-hmm. that make people a fuck of a lot of money. And the way they do that is by treating these workers so poorly and forcing them to have this this output that then brings in the billions of dollars. And so, of course, we haven't seen a politician say, you know what, reduce your output by half. Like, let's let's look at what the impact is uh, on Canada's food supply if you reduce your 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 uh, your manufacturing to just meet Canadian demand, and let's not really talk about exports, let's not really talk about all of the other things that you would normally do, because I don't know, we're in a fucking pandemic. You maybe don't have to make three billion, four billion, five billion dollars this year, except they all will. Um, but there's no political desire to do that. And then, you know, you could call for that, but then the government would also have to pay for workers to make sure, or companies could pay for workers to make sure that if their shifts were reduced, that they wouldn't be taking a financial hit because of this. But there are safety measures and there has been nothing. I mean, Sandy, this is not going to surprise you, but I went through 561 press releases issued by the Ontario government from the first note mention of a presumed case of COVID in February until uh, October 30th. Um, how many times do you think a press release related to racism was issued? <laughs> um, it wasn't zero. I'll say that. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably not zero given the the, the year that we've had. Um, three. <laughs> wow, you're really good. It was three. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're good at predictions here. Don't ask us about what's going to happen on the day that this comes out. <laughs> well, we'll have to end with that, I think. We have no choice but oh, to make no. some predictions. Yeah, Uh-oh. three. Three. And not one of them was related to COVID. Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. No. They're related to the the decision to de-stream grade nine, which is an academic uh, thing. I mean, if you're not familiar with Ontario, it's not really, we can get into it in another maybe episode. Uh, it was just, uh, a, a press release reacting to racism within the Peel School Board and the government accepting recommendations. Um, and a third press release uh, announcing a pot of money for anti-racist initiatives that was going to be a whopping $1.6 million over two years. Mm. 
So we have the city of Toronto data. I'd mentioned earlier the city of Ottawa, like their data has come out. Uh, they also are collecting race-based data and it is similar uh, to, to, to Toronto. I mean, that uh, that racialized people are, are way overrepresented in how many people are getting COVID. Um, and so that's, you know, those are two pretty important cities in, in Ontario. And the government of Ontario hasn't issued a single release that's like on anything that refer- references the race-based impact of COVID. Like, it, is this ignorance or is this malice? I mean, <laughs> I would say that this is fucking malice. I think it, it is also a failure of advocacy organizations um, enforcing the conversation on this. I think in particular um, unions are uh, to blame here. Like they should be talking about uh, where people work, who is being impacted and forcing to the, gov- the government to respond. But also what has been interesting is the way that the public discourse has kind of shifted around COVID-19 with respect to not necessarily these issues, but the issues of like a second wave or rising cases. Have you found, like I have found, that a lot of people have started to say, well, what do you expect governments to do? They've done their best. There's nothing they can really do about it. We're just all going to have to uh, take our chances uh, with reopening. We can't be shut out forever. Have you started to notice more of that amongst people uh, who perhaps you wouldn't expect it from? Uh, Luckily, no, because that would probably drive me uh, up the wall. (laughs) Thank God I haven't seen that. Uh, It is. It is. (laughs) It's driving me up the wall. And I have experienced that. And I've also heard people say, um, you know, not people, not people that I know. Sorry, I've I've heard I've seen white supremacists troll me (laughs) say (laughs) that, you know, like, yeah, okay, so black people are more susceptible to it. Like, what are we supposed to do about that? You know, if that's how they're constituted. (laughs) It's just like I have seen that. Yeah. I would like to turn everybody's attention towards the continent of Africa. (laughs) Okay. For everybody who says that governments can't do more than what they've been doing. And for every racist out there who's just like black people are just likely to get more sick. I would like you to turn your attention towards the continent of Africa who, you know, that whole continent, um, Uh, Countries responded very quickly with respect to lockdowns very early before they were even seeing cases. In some cases, they were shutting down and with really, really strict travel measures, forcing people to who had entered the country to quarantine in hotels that they procured uh, near the airport for two weeks before being able to leave and actually enter the country. Things that could happen in a wealthy country like Canada too, but just fucking didn't. And if you're looking at the data, if you're looking at the data of like how cases have spread, countries in Africa have been able to keep it mostly under control. Because of these early measures, because of their governments doing everything that they could, because of, well, the public support and education in <laughs> Africa for people to know how to take this type of stuff seriously. There haven't really been, um, you know, uh, protests saying, you know, you fuck masks or whatever. Um and and because of uh, of how there was like a, a quick, robust public health approach um, to, to all of this in most of the countries in Africa, I just I don't know. We can't 
but all of those places that are are not as wealthy and folks would assume would not have the same ability or infrastructure to deal with this can do this much better. Do not let the government off the hook, people. Don't do it. Don't do it. They had the ability to take take this by the horns as it was arriving before, and they certainly still have the ability to implement the types of policies and changes that we need to see to take better care of this. Mm-hmm. The issue here is that the particular people who are most affected, you know, they've got it under control, like looking at the numbers, they've got it under control for certain communities, for wealthy communities and for white communities. The rest of us are devalued, and so it doesn't matter. Yeah. In August, uh, Toronto Star reporter Jennifer Yang uh, was reporting on the, I think it was the first release of this race-based data from the city of Toronto. And in the analyses uh, from the data released by public health, there was this incredible graph that had put uh, income and race together and uh, and, and separated by, by quartiles. So, so first, second, third, and fourth. And the moment that lockdown uh, measures came into effect, just before all four uh, qu- uh, quartiles were, were rising, right? They were all rising in about the way that you would expect them to to rise, right? And everyone's on the upswing. The 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 moment the measures came in uh, to uh, stop all non essential services, the 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 top two quartiles uh, dropped instantly, and the bottom two continued to rise to spike. And so it, it, was, it was like this incredible visual graph of the of the impact of the lockdown measures, the way that Canada imposed lockdown measures, which was to force everybody who's got a quote unquote essential job, basically a job that makes someone uh, extremely wealthy under the guise of like being essential. Uh, th- they had to keep working and everyone who could afford to stay in, they stayed in. And so the, the curve, quote unquote, was was planked instantly for the top two quartiles and was spiked instantly for the bottom two quartiles. And for that to have been the main public health instrument that all politicians in this country have used, seeing that impact that on, on, on people based on race and on income is so, so stark. And and to know that that is still the primary policy instrument that they're using. And they're not even using it perfectly, right? They're leaving gyms open. They're letting people still get married. They're letting people have private parties in different ways. And and so it's like, we know what's going to happen. We are seeing the inf- the impact of this. And I think anytime a white person's like, oh my God, my school's not safe. This isn't safe. I don't feel safe. Like you have to decenter yourself from, from your proximity to safety because because the reality is it's very clear who is and who is not safe by statistics. And as you say, we need more explanation and analysis on what's happening. And we certainly need this. Like Montreal has not produced a similar uh, graphing information. And so we're only using co- uh, proximity data there. Uh, certainly Alberta is another place where, where cases are spiking in a really frightening way. And that's another place where Dina Hinshaw, the, the head of public health there, said that they're going to collect race-based data. I have not seen if that's followed up or not yet. Um, and so it's just like we we have to consistently throw the message back towards what really matters here, which is who is the most impacted by this. And Sandy, you're so right in saying that there's also a failure of advocacy groups to make sure that this is the the way that we are seeing this this pandemic, because the the advocacy groups that have done such a good job 
are the ones where we're hearing the most about their industry. And so, like, that's the Migrant Workers Alliance, who mm-hmm. have been very on top of making sure that they've got members ready to speak, they're protecting people's identities, they've got connections with journalists, they're doing press conferences, and they're making sure that migrant workers are not forgotten in this pandemic. And the other group I want to shout out is the is UFCW Local 401 in Alberta, who represents... Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of food worker, uh, food processors, meat packers, um, grocery workers across the province of Alberta, they really drove those early um, uh, narratives around the safety within food processing, especially meat packing industries. And they also have played a very critical role to make sure that journalists have not been able to forget of, of, of how workers have been demanding for more safety and how mostly bosses are, are brushing them off or finding ways to, to get around that. But but by and large, it has been a massive failure. And and it's really frustrating because the stuff's really obvious. You know, we, we talked about the throne speech. There was not a single measure in the throne speech mm-hmm. about COVID and race. Mm-hmm. Right. There was their 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 solution to this phenomenon was to pivot directly to talking about that entrepreneurial program. Yeah, I was just thinking about how fascinating it is um, and completely uh fucking despicable it is that there's been so much discussion this year about race in Canada and about you know this this kind of fervent question of whether systemic racism exists in Canada and so yeah okay the politicians by and large have said that they agree that systemic racism exists in Canada and so they put 1.9 million dollars towards some arts programs and like 1.9 million dollars or or something around that amount to um uh to a uh, economic fund like that's not going to have an impact on systemic racism do you believe <laughs> that systemic racism exists everything any measure that the government has come up with our governments have come up with with respect to racism are all fucking failure type platitudes that will do little to nothing with the, with the with the exception of their commitments around data because you know look at us being able to to speak to you about data today with the exception of of their commitments about data nothing that they have announced will do anything at all and we should be absolutely outraged about this they could they could and they they should you know like i i was listening to the current um, uh, at some point this week, and they were having a discussion about uh, whether or not uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals could expect that there was going to be a COVID nineteen election. Right, that was a great segment, and it's yeah. like it's like obviously. I mean, there's no, that's actually not a question. The next election is going to be a COVID-19 election, whether or not we're in a spike, whether or not we've gotten rid of it, whether or not there's been a vaccine. The next election will be a COVID-19 election because we think that we might be hurting now, but the long-term effects of everything that's happening is going to get worse and worse if governments don't take action to plan for that now. And spoiler alert, they're not taking action to plan for that now. And here's a grand prediction. They won't take action to plan for that later. And so, yes, the next election will be a COVID-19 election. And the people who are going to be 
harmed the most and the people who are are being harmed the most right now desperately need policy that is going to turn this around. And so we need not only um, government uh, policymakers uh, who are who are in power right now to be paying attention to this. We need the media to be paying attention to this and not be surprised by it when it gets worse later and say, oh, God, what a terrible situation. We never saw it coming. We need advocacy organizations whose jobs it is to force the government to look at these things, to be forcing the government now and not, uh, you know, frantically just before an election period. And we need opposition <laughs> parties to get off their ass and care about uh, the people who are being impacted racially, who are being impacted by their class because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's Tuesday. We can't end the show just on that, um, though I'd like to. <laughs> There's some stuff happening tonight. I mean, if you're listening on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or sometime in the future, you know, you, you already know what happens. Or maybe you don't. I mean, that's a big prediction right there, Nora. Right. <laughs> to suggest that people will know what happened on Wednesday. I don't know. You're going to ask me to do this first? No, I'm not I don't have to. I mean, I can tell I can tell the the dear listeners about my my new theory around uh the dead voting. Oh yeah. <laughs> we talked about this just before the before we turned on the recording and this made me extremely stressed out. So go ahead. <laughs> tell the people. Well, I, we were talking about all the ways that Trump could probably mess with the results and with so many people dying every day in the United States, like there's got to have been a lot of people who have died who've already voted and who have died. <laughs> And uh, so I was saying, you know, what are the odds that they'll just be working to disqualify anybody's ballot who was killed by COVID in the period of time when they mailed their ballot in? And um, and Sandy, you did a bit of research uh, and found out that there's a little bit of case law on this. Yeah, I did a little bit of research. So the way that voting works in America is that the states control who votes, uh, which <laughs> seems ridiculous yeah that's that's how you have issues like you know in florida a whole bunch of uh, people who might be on parole are not allowed to vote or uh people who were formerly incarcerated not allowed to vote but that's not an issue in maine (laughs) because the states it's it's a state power to decide uh limitations around voting oh my god Anyway, that's that's a little thing I learned in law. And I was like, why, why, why? No, this makes sense. <laughs> and everyone was like, of course it makes sense. How does it happen in your country? That's weird. <laughs> Very strange. Um, or actually, many people were like, that seems to make so much sense that it would be a federal thing for <laughs> federal you know, election. Um, what the fuck? The federal government <laughs> to to control who votes in the federal election. Bizarre. Um, but yes, 17 states prohibit counting ballots cast by someone who subsequently dies before the election. (laughs) 10 states specifically allow it. All the other states, you'd have to take them ballots to court. Wow. (laughs) Which is not funny at the fuck all, but I can do nothing else but laugh. (laughs) Okay, so how do you think that's going to impact the election? Uh, Well, I think that Trump is going to put uh, challenge after challenge after challenge. And actually, like, who knows? Maybe the Democrats might, too. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't actually think they will. I think that they'll roll over if um, <laughs> if they lose by like six million and Trump is like, I'm still the winner. I think they'll just be like, OK, fine. Um, 
Because I think what Hillary was four million, right? We're the popular vote, but they lost the electoral college. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know the numbers, but it was, it was big. Yeah, there's a margin where the Democrats will just roll over and be like, okay, well, as long as the markets are happy, we'll figure it out. Um, I, I still think Trump is gonna win, and I am not basing that on a whole lot other than. I mean, the current keeps finding random Americans that are all voting Trump and telling me that they're really good people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's that. I mean, I, uh, I too believe that Trump is going to win. I did like, though, I had this, uh, just a quick story. I went to the grocery store yesterday, yesterday, and an elderly black man with a stick <laughs> poked me with his stick and then said hey i'm just trying to keep my distance but have you voted yet (laughs) and i said i'm canadian he's like oh damn you know he's like i'm just doing my part you know getting my vegetables and if i see a black person i'm just making sure you know we can't afford not to vote and i loved that so i'm hoping that more of that is happening Mm. (laughs) um yeah i think that trump is gonna win I think that Trump is going to win. It's just this feeling that I get. There yeah. was, there's this like very large rally, uh, Trump rally in Beverly Hills recently. Oh, God. I just, I don't know. There's just, there's so much weirdness also on the left, too, with people really um, not being interested in voting or thinking that, uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot. There's, it's very complicated. It feels like, to me, that Trump is going to win. Um, but as I was saying to Nora before the show, it kind of feels like he wins either way because I don't think it's going to be a decisive victory for Biden, even if the Democrats are managed to eke through. I think it'll be a small victory for Biden. And if it is a small victory for Biden, that's I think that's the best case scenario. If it is a small victory for, for Biden, I think that protests among uh, the more gun-happy uh portions of the u.s population will erupt across america and i think that the the government will start launching as many uh uh, lawsuits as they can to suppress a number of the votes from being counted which you know those 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 lawsuits have already started and so either way I think it's a victory for Trump because uh, I I think that a, a small victory for 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 Biden will just spell destabilization and so and that's a that's a destabilization is a victory for Trump. So Trump wins. Uh, I, for for me, like the way the Democrats tried to to vote against Amy Coney Barrett's uh, nomination, like it just seemed so weak. And so really appealing to the moral character of the United States. I mean, that's something that people keep saying in the Democratic Party, the moral character, the moral character. And that, for me, is a big, giant red flag that they don't actually have a fucking plan beyond pleading. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's not looking it's not looking good, but uh, I will enjoy my day off on Election Day. <laughs> oh, nice. And... And my day off post-election day because I only have the class with the the one of my professors who is like truly human. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was like, I'm just going to record the class ahead of time. You guys can watch it whenever you want. Come to class if you want to talk about how you feel or not. Whatever. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
probably not going to class on Wednesday either. <laughs> but but I also another prediction is that uh, I do think it'll take quite a long time to finish counting all the votes. Yeah. I think that's another uh, 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 prediction. So yeah. I think it's going to be a long, long night on Tuesday. Hey, hey our next episode might even just be uh, uh, us predicting again what's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I just found out recently that they've already started counting votes. Yes, I did know that. That's a bit weird. Uh, (laughs) Someone out there knows the status of what the votes are right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. And you're telling me that person is, like, officially neutral? <laughs> okay. Well, this is the country that keeps the masked singer, like, totally secret for fucking eight months, right? So. Oh, my fucking God. No, no. This is all bad. <laughs> this is this is all bad. Yeah, solidarity to our American listeners. Um, good fucking luck. And um, tell us how you're doing. Yeah. And my friends in Vancouver, get ready for me, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> See y'all next week. Mm-hmm.